millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of American Biography is brought to you by audible.com. Audible is the world's largest producer of spoken audio entertainment. With over 150,000 downloadable audiobooks to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. You can support this show by going to www.audibletrial.com forward slash American Biography. And by signing up for a 30-day free trial, you can get a free audiobook download. There's no obligation to continue the service, and you can cancel at any time, and even keep the book as their gift to you. This time, I'm going to recommend Pauline Mayer's Ratification, The People Debate the Constitution, 1787-1788. through 1788. In Ratification, Mayer recounts how the national debate over the new Constitution didn't just take place in convention halls, but also in letters, newspapers, taverns, and homes. So after you're done listening to this episode, please go check it out. Hello, and welcome back to American Biography. This is the life of John Marshall, Episode 12, The Virginia Convention. In the wake of the 1787 Shays' Rebellion, the usually composed John Marshall despaired for the future. In a 1787 letter to James Wilkinson, he wrote, These violent ascensions in a state I had thought inferior in wisdom and virtue to no one in our union, added to the strong tendency which the politics of many eminent characters among ourselves have to promote private and public dishonesty, cast a deep shade over the bright prospect which the revolution in America and the establishment of our free governments had opened to the votaries of liberty throughout the globe. I fear and there is no opinion more degrading to the dignity of man, that those have truth on their side who say that man is incapable of governing himself. The violence and the flouting of civil authority was bad, but Marshall was also troubled by the phenomenon he obliquely refers to as 
the promotion of private and public dishonesty, by which he means equivocating on debt. This was a prevalent problem throughout the states, and in its own way was also a major motivating factor in the push for a new constitution. It occurs to me that I've inadvertently danced around this issue when talking about the nation's economic woes up to this point, so I'd like to correct that before I move on. In an 1835 speech about Marshall, Joseph Story described the United States in 1787. The state legislatures were constantly called upon by public clamor and private sufferings to interpose summary remedies to ward off the hardships of the times. The people, loaded with debts and goaded on almost to madness by thickening calamities, demanded measures of relief of the most extravagant nature. The relations of debtor and creditor, always delicate, became every day more embarrassed and more embarrassing. Laws suspending the collection of debts, insolvent laws, installment laws, tender laws, and other expedients of a like nature, which every reflecting man knew would only aggravate the evils, were familiarly adopted, or openly and boldly vindicated. Popular leaders, as well as men of desperate fortunes, availed themselves, as is usual on such occasions, of this agitating state of things to inflame the public mind and to bring into public odium those wiser statesmen who labored to support the public faith and to preserve the inviability of private contracts. For Marshall, repayment of debt was inextricably linked to the security of contracts. Market economies live in faith. Faith that my employer is going to pay me for work performed at the end of the week. Faith that the title to my land means I own it today and will mean the same thing tomorrow. And faith that if I extend somebody credit, it's going to come back to me per the terms of the borrowing agreement. All of these things are in their own way contracts, and they exist not only to spell out in clear terms obligations, and expectations, but also to provide the parties reasonable assurance that they'll receive satisfaction should one party violate the terms of the contract. But what if these agreements suddenly weren't enforceable, or obligations were outright canceled? How long would you work if pay stopped coming? How secure is your home if the state is able to decide on a whim that your title's suddenly invalid? How long would creditors lend money for payroll, for cars, for homes, for business ventures, if there wasn't the reasonable assurance of repayment? It may sound contradictory, but in a strange way, contractual obligation provides the underpinning for a functional free society. And as Marshall watched populist agitation being embraced by sympathetic or demagogic legislators, only too happy to boost their popularity with the people by supporting the mitigation of contractual obligations through debt relief measures, he felt all this was threatened. The proposed Constitution promised to stabilize the situation through a more energetic national government and by expressly prohibiting many of the nefarious habits the states had fallen into. As Beveridge puts it, Finance, commerce, and business assembled the Philadelphia Convention, he continues, Too much emphasis cannot be put upon the fact that the mercantile and financial interests were the weightiest of all the influences for the Constitution. 
the debtors and agricultural interests, the strongest groups against it. It deserves repetition for a proper understanding of the craft and the force practiced by both sides in the battle over ratification, that those who owed debts were generally against the Constitution, and practically all to whom debts were due were for the new government. And I'm just going to have to keep rolling here with Beveridge because he's really gotten going. And, as usual, his prose is just fantastic, even if he lets his Gilded Age disdain for the rabble show just a bit. In one camp, the uninformed and credulous, those who owe debts and abhorred government, with a sprinkling among them of eminent, educated, and well-meaning men who were philosophic apostles of theoretical liberty, and in the other camp, men of property and lovers of order, the trading and moneyed interest, whose first thought was business, the veterans of the revolution, who had learned on the battlefield the need for a strong central government, and here and there a prophetic and constructive mind who sought to build a nation. Marshall was an enthusiastic supporter of the Constitution from the first, precisely for these reasons, which were entirely in line with the majority of the property class that he, as a successful attorney, was now part. Marshall said the state's unpredictable economic policies brought annually into doubt principles which I thought most sound and proved that everything was afloat and that we had no safe anchorage ground. This gave a high value in my estimation to that article in the Constitution which imposes restrictions on the states. I was consequently a determined advocate for its adoption and became a candidate for the convention to which it was to be submitted. Here John is probably referring to the restrictions stated in Article 1, Section 10, Clause 1 of the Constitution, which reads, No state shall enter into any treaty, alliance, or confederation, coin money, emit bills of credit, or pass any law impairing the obligation of contracts. Marshall felt that only a well-regulated democracy achieved through the Constitution, which diminished the power of the states in favor of a stronger national government, was needed to preserve the gains of the revolution, and he stated bluntly, Liberty must disappear from earth unless the abuses of it practiced in many states could be eliminated. But before we think his support of the Constitution was just a cold economic calculus, I'd pause to consider his other life experiences. He'd been a soldier that had witnessed the fecklessness of the states in supporting the war effort. He'd been a legislator who saw firsthand the perfidy of the states in the face of national and, as he saw it, moral obligations. And Marshall's father, along with George Washington, the two men he most revered in the world, were both in favor of the Constitution. So when we look at the whole picture, it's really no wonder that Marshall landed solidly in Virginia's pro-Constitution Federalist camp. Now, as we discussed last episode, ultimate approval of the Constitution would take place in specially elected state conventions. However, the regular state legislatures still had to fund and organize these conventions. In October 1787, when the Virginia legislature met, the preeminent patriot and oratorical hurricane Patrick Henry moved against the motion to establish the Virginia Ratifying Convention. 
Henry had achieved living legend status with his 1765 Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death speech in opposition to the Stamp Act. Since then, he had been a wartime governor of Virginia and had become the champion of the bumptious and rowdy common folk of Virginia's western Piedmont region. He was a consistent opponent of the Virginia establishment and was a predictable, yet powerful, opponent of the Constitution. He had declined himself to attend the Philadelphia Convention, though he'd been selected as a delegate. But now he rose to say that he could not support the state convention if such an assembly was not empowered to offer amendments to the proposed Constitution. As if this weren't enough for the Federalists to deal with, George Mason rose in agreement with Henry. Mason was a respected jurist and legislator, as well as the primary author of the Virginia State Constitution and State Bill of Rights. He had attended the Philadelphia Convention, but had left the city without signing the final document. He was a leading member of the Tidewater elite and had rarely ever seen eye to eye with Patrick Henry in the past. Yet here he stood declaring that it would be a treasonable act to approve the Constitution without amendments. And raising his right hand for dramatic effect, he declared, I would have lost this hand before it should have marked my name to the new government. This one-two punch caught the Federalist leaders flat-footed. The suggestion to amend the Constitution prior to ratification was in fact a poison pill, and it jived perfectly with a growing opposition, or anti-Federalist, tactic, which called for a second convention to address the perceived effects of the proposed Constitution by debating and incorporating the suggested amendments coming from the various states. The Virginia Federalists, however, could see the game for what it was. If alterations to the document were allowed, even in one state, all the other states would follow suit, and there would have to be a second convention to reconcile those changes. Now, perhaps lightning could strike twice, and perhaps the second convention would produce an amended plan of government, but that would probably take at least another year, if not longer, and then the ratification process would have to play out again. And what if there were more proposed amendments at that point? In reality, Henry's proposal was little more than a ploy to essentially kill the Constitution by getting it stuck in an endless loop until people lost interest. Luckily, Marshall had returned to the legislature in 1787, this time as a representative of Henrico County, where Richmond was located. He quickly jumped to his feet and offered a substitute motion that ambiguously stated that the proposed Constitution ought to be submitted to a convention of the people for their full and free investigation and discussion. Marshall's motion neither promised nor prohibited the possibility of amendments, and when it went to vote, his phraseology was approved unanimously, and the date for the convention was set for the first Monday of June, 1788. Elections to the state convention were scheduled for the following March. Marshall stood for election in Henrico County, though it wasn't a foregone conclusion that he'd be a successful candidate. In truth, it seems that he was only selected due to a quirk in the temperament of the electorate. He later wrote about this, saying, The county in which I resided was decidedly anti-federal, but I was at the time popular, and parties had not yet become so bitter as to extinguish private affections. A great majority of the people of Virginia was anti-federalist, but in several of the counties most opposed to the adoption of the Constitution, 
individuals of high character and great influence came forward as candidates and were elected. Of course, by individuals of high character, Marshall means supporters of the Constitution, who somehow got elected to the convention as Federalists by an anti-Federalist population because of personal popularity or family name or some other reason besides the candidate's one opinion regarding the one question this special convention was called upon to decide. Now just sit back for a second and let that sink in. It sort of makes you question the efficacy of democracy just a bit, doesn't it? By the time the Virginia Convention met, eight states had already ratified the Constitution without amendment. Per the rules in place, the next state to ratify would be the ninth and final state necessary to approve the Constitution. As one of the largest and most populous states, it seemed fitting that this historic moment seemed to turn on Virginia's decision. Despite the fact that Patrick Henry estimated four out of five Virginians were not in favor of ratification, when James Madison did an initial vote count at the outset, he saw a slight pro-ratification majority, but knew it would be a fight and that it could go either way. Madison had returned to Virginia to lead the Federalists on the floor of the convention. With Madison stood Edmund Pendleton, the president of the Virginia Court of Appeals, our old friend George Wythe, Governor Edmund Randolph, and young John Marshall, of whom, at this juncture, Corwin writes, was already coming to be regarded as one excellent in counsel as well as in formal discussion, and his democratic manners and personal popularity with all classes were a pronounced asset for any cause he chose to espouse. In opposition stood Patrick Henry, George Mason, and Marshall's good friend James Monroe, one of the few veterans of the Virginia line who did not support the Constitution. The showdown was set. On Monday, June 2nd, 1788, the convention came to order, for the briefest of business. But Madison, a masterful political strategist, was ready with a plan. Quickly, Edmund Pendleton, a staunch supporter of the Constitution, with serious patriot bona fides, was nominated the convention's president. Without a nominee of their own, the Anti-Federalists could hardly oppose such a distinguished person, and from this opening gambit, Federalists were able to seize an important procedural advantage. The next morning, Pendleton had the Congress's resolution calling for the Philadelphia Convention, as well as Marshall's motion, establishing the Virginia Convention, read into the record, thereby preempting any possible objections to the legality of the proceedings. Mason was soon on his feet. Fearing that the Federalists were going to try and steamroll the Constitution through the Convention, he called for a clause-by-clause -clause discussion of the document. This was a major blunder. Not only did this prevent any motions or amendments from being heard until the clause-by-clause -clause debate was concluded, but Mason essentially allowed Madison, you know, the guy who was one of the primary architects of the Constitution, that had been writing instructional essays about every facet of the document for publication for the last several months, a forum for his expertise. Simultaneously, this neutralized the anti-federalist's most effective weapon, Patrick Henry, who worked best when he was able to launch into invectives against the Constitution as a whole. On June 4th, the convention really got down to business. The clerk was instructed to read out the preamble and the first two sections of the Constitution, and the famously loquacious Virginians 
got down to speech-making. Federalist George Nicholas immediately spoke for two hours focused on what the clerk had just read, and after he finished, Henry rose to hammer at his favorite objection to the Constitution. It was illegal. What right had they, meaning the authors of the Constitution, to say, we the people? Who authorized them to speak the language, we the people, instead of we the states? That they exceeded their power is perfectly clear. The Federal Convention ought to have amended the old system. For this purpose, they were solely delegated. The object of their mission extended to no other consideration. Henry's words had had the power to sway public bodies for nearly a quarter century, and the Federalists' hopes lay in trying to mitigate the damage he could do by having speakers ready to answer him. This time, the governor, Edmund Randolph, would offer the rebuttal. Anticipation at what Randolph had to say effectively neutralized Henry's remarks. Randolph had been a delegate to the Federal Convention as well, and like Mason, had refused to affix his name to the Constitution. But he'd played his cards so close to his vest that no one was exactly sure where he stood. Many simply assumed he was an anti-Federalist. But now Randolph declared, As with me, the only question has ever been between previous or subsequent amendments. So will I express my apprehensions that the postponement of this convention to so late a date has extinguished the probability of the former without inevitable ruin to the Union, and the Union is the anchor of our political salvation. And I assert to the lopping of this limb, referencing his arm in a clear dig at Mason's previous speech, before I assent to the dissolution of the Union. The Anti-Federalists were stunned, and thanks to Randolph, the Federalists seemed like they might run away with the convention after all. But the next day, June 5th, Henry now took the floor, and he spoke for three hours. What had been so wrong with the old confederation, he asked? Had it not carried the country through the war with Britain? Hadn't it secured a territory larger than any European kingdom? How could a government strong enough to do these things be tossed aside for being too weak? Then doing his best simple country lawyer routine, Henry said, I am not well versed in history, but I will submit to your recollection whether liberty has been destroyed most often by licentiousness of the people or by the tyranny of rulers. This constitution is said to have beautiful features. But when I come to examine these features, sir, they appear to me horribly frightful. Among other deformities, it has an awful squinting. It squints towards monarchy. Your president may easily become king. Your senate is so imperfectly constructed that your dearest rights may be sacrificed by what may be a small minority. Where are your checks in this government? With this speech, Henry effectively halted whatever momentum the Federalist had thus far built. The following Monday, June 9th, things in the convention appeared to be going pear-shaped. Henry again spoke at some length. In reading his remarks, I didn't see anything particularly incendiary or personal, but he said something that set Edmund Randolph off. Randolph seems to have taken exception to Henry calling him inconsistent in the positions he'd taken on the Constitution, which was, of course, correct. But Randolph nevertheless demanded, 
This committee, by way of right, to permit me to answer some severe charges against the friends of the Constitution. It is a right I am entitled to and shall have. I find myself attacked in the most illiberal manner by the honorable gentleman. Henry, I disdain his aspersions and his insinuations. His asperity is warranted by no principle of parliamentary decency, nor compatible with the least shadow of friendship, and if our friendship must fall, let it fall, like Lucifer never to rise again. Then things got a little strange. The recorded minutes then describe the following scene. Mr. Henry arose and declared that he had no personal intention of offending anyone, that he did his duty, but that he did not mean to wound the feelings of any gentleman, and that he was sorry if he had offended the honorable gentleman, meaning Randolph, without intending it, and that every gentleman had a right to maintain his opinion. His Excellency, that is Governor Randolph, then said that he was relieved by what the honorable gentleman said, that... Were it not for the concession of the gentleman, he would have made some men's hair stand on end by the disclosures of certain facts. Mr. Henry then requested that, if he had anything to say against him, he would disclose it. The proceedings ended that day, only after Randolph had gone on, further justifying himself and defending his honor for quite some time, before everyone finally got to leave, probably feeling a little bit uncomfortable. And just to cap that story off, Gene Smith relates that later in the evening, Patrick Henry actually sent a friend over to Randolph's house, acting as his second, to challenge the governor to a duel. But thankfully, their issues were resolved through private discussion, and it never came to that. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It was in the wake of this strange episode that both sides seemed to reevaluate their strategies and switch things up. On June 10th, new speakers, fresh blood if you will, in the persons of James Monroe and John Marshall, would speak. Smith, rather witheringly, refers to Monroe's speech as, like Monroe himself, sincere but lacking fire. The future president delivered a rather ponderous speech that spent 
an inordinate amount of time linking back to ancient Greece, and the minutes confirm that, indeed, Mr. Monroe read several passages in Polybius, tending to elucidate and prove the excellent structure of the Achaean League. Monroe's speech didn't go well, and when he closed by saying, I have fatigued the committee, but as I have not yet said all that I wish upon the subject, I trust I shall be indulged another day. And I like to imagine the listeners jumping up and saying, No, 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 really, we're okay, we get it. Now it was Marshall's turn. His address was largely a reply to the many speeches Henry had thus far delivered. It wasn't a masterful or beautiful speech. It was a lawyer's speech. It isolated issues and sought to bring the listener along with the speaker as he came to what seemed like the only logical conclusion. In response to Henry's fears of excessive and unchecked power, Marshall said, The friends of the Constitution are as tenacious of liberty as its enemies. They wish to give no power that will endanger it. They wish to give the government powers to secure and protect it. What are the objects of the national government? To protect the United States and to promote the general welfare. The object of our inquiry is, is the power necessary and is it guarded? He continues, the gentleman tells us there are no checks in this plan. What has become of his enthusiastic eulogium on the American spirit? We should find a check and control when oppressed from that source. In this country, there is no exclusive personal stock of interest. The interest of the community is blended and inseparably connected with that of the individual. When he promotes his own, he promotes that of the community. When we consult the common good, we consult our own. When he desires such checks as these, he will find them abundantly here. They are the best checks. Despite going right after Henry here, only a day after Henry had challenged somebody to a duel, it's notable that, though vastly politically different, Henry and Marshall were actually fairly fond of one another. This is emblematic of one of Marshall's best traits, one that is all too rare in the world, the ability to keep friends with one's political opponents. But this was also a crucial part of the shadow fight for ratification, and is where Marshall may have made his greatest contributions to ratification in Virginia. Richmond's inns and taverns, such as Formicola's or the Swan, were always hubs of activity for thirsty visitors who had traveled to Richmond, and the convention delegates were no exception in the summer of 1788. We'll never know for certain just how much of the day's debates carried over to that evening's conversations, or how much backroom bargaining or arm-twisting was employed, and it's impossible to quantify exactly how important all of this was to the ultimate outcome of the convention itself, but we do know a few things. We know the human condition, and that people are vulnerable to this sort of persuasion, even if just subconsciously. And we know that Marshall's sociability was perfectly suited to engaging in such behind-the-scenes consensus building, because we know that Marshall was so well-liked, even by opponents, that following the convention, Henry happily collaborated with John on several cases, and George Mason entrusted the entirety of his personal legal matters to John. And we know that John Marshall lived just down the road from where the convention was being held, 
literally putting Marshall in an optimal position to exercise this skill set. John's account books indicate that he was ready and willing to pull out all the stops. In the weeks before the convention, he bought shoes, silk stockings, fabric for new shirts and pants, a new coat and waistcoat, and a hat. But he didn't stop at just sprucing up his duds. His outlay for meat, cheese, vegetables, all increased markedly. He purchased quantities of glasses, bottles, and corks, along with seven barrels of wine. And while the convention was in town, he regularly played host to committed and uncommitted delegates both. Meanwhile, the seesaw battle in the chamber continued. Marshall next spoke on June 16th, after some anti-federalists asserted that the Constitution would leave the states no longer in control of their militias. Marshall rose, and I love the way the recorder handled this interaction, writing, Mr. John Marshall asked if the gentlemen were serious when they asserted that. Then after some back and forth, the minutes record that Marshall concluded by observing that the power of governing the militia was not vested in the states by implication, because being possessed of it antecedent to the adoption of the government, and not being divested of it by any grant or restriction in the Constitution, they must necessarily be as fully possessed of it as they'd ever been. But Marshall's finest moment in the chamber was still approaching. The discussion of Article Three of the Constitution was nearing, and the debate was turning towards the federal judiciary. The final form of the courts was an important issue to both sides. Anti-Federalist opposition to the federal courts stemmed from their general tendency to eye national institutions with a xenophobic suspicion, as foreign or other. Their minds were in no way put at ease when these new courts, created out of whole cloth by the Constitution, were to be packed with unelected judges, receiving appointments from a distant national government and granted jurisdiction over the interpretation of treaties and national laws, as well as an array of issues currently handled by state courts that were perceived not only as competent in these matters, but were also seen as more sensitive to local needs. In this way, to anti-federalists, the proposed federal judiciary seemed somewhat unnecessary, unless their purpose was to tyrannically impose the will of the national government upon the states to the diminution of state power. Of course, for the friends of the Constitution, yeah, that was exactly the point. Diminishing the power of the states in favor of a stronger national government was the basic underlying principle of the Constitution, and frankly, the thought of the laws passed by the national government being subject to 13 different jurisdictional interpretations was the stuff of nightmares for the Federalists. I mean, what would the point of it all be then? If that were the case, the Union would literally be right back where it was in 1786. As the debates continued, the Anti-Federalists felt momentum shifting to their side, and they believed that Article 3 gave them ample material to work with in order to drive the final nail into the Constitution's coffin. That Mason and Henry were chosen to speak against the courts was a foregone conclusion. The debate over the judiciary was to be the last great clash of the convention. The Federalists reasonably chose to lead with the venerable Pendleton. That Madison and Randolph were to be held in reserve also made sense in case things took unexpected turns. What was a surprise 
was that at this critical juncture, the Federalists called on John Marshall to carry the water in support of the aged and infirm Pendleton. Marshall was not a major player outside of Richmond at this point in his life, and he lacked Madison's experience or Randolph's silver tongue. Yet, as Smith writes, he was chosen because no one else could provide the tight logical analysis of the federal court structure that was required. The judiciary article had to be explained point by point to the delegates, and no one was better at synthesizing a mass of detail and making it comprehensible than Marshall. On June 19th, things did not start well for the Federalist defense of Article 3, when Pendleton was only able to speak for about 30 minutes before visibly tiring and becoming inaudible. Unable to finish his address, he was helped to his seat. Mason was then recognized and spoke for several hours attacking the broad jurisdictions granted to the national judiciary and its superfluous nature. When he finished, the hour was late and Henry and Marshall were bumped to the next day. On the 20th, Henry delivered another bombastic speech, harping on the jurisdictional issues again and lamenting the prostration of all of Virginia's rights in the not-too-distant future. Pendleton tried to reply but was again not able to be effective. Mason was quickly back on his feet, hammering away at the judiciary. Things were on the verge of getting out of hand. Then Marshall called for the floor and was recognized. Marshall proceeded to unpack Article 3, laying it all out for the assembled delegates, answering and refuting anti-federalist objections while he did so. At every opportunity, Marshall presented the proposed federal judiciary as the defender of liberty and the guarantor of the Constitution. To the idea that judges would conspire to oppress the people, he answered, if Congress were to make a law not warranted by any of the powers enumerated, it would be considered by the judges as an infringement of the Constitution which they are to guard. They would declare it void. In the face of persistent anti-federalist fear-mongering over tyranny, Marshall asked the delegates to stop and think about their own experiences. If a law be exercised tyrannically in Virginia, to what can you trust? To your judiciary. What security have you for justice? Their independence. Will it not be so with the federal court? The Anti-Federalists had asked what's the point of the judiciary. Marshall was happy to answer them and let them know that it was the only institution capable of promoting peaceable order without recourse to naked force. But the most insightful moment of his speech was one that could really be applied to the ratification of the Constitution in general. He said, We ought well to weigh the good and evil before we determine. We ought to be well convinced that the evil will be really produced before we decide against it. If we be convinced that the good greatly preponderates, though there be small defects in it, shall we give up that which is really good? when we can remove the little mischief it may contain in the plain, easy method pointed out in the system itself? Marshall's speech was very well received, and Gene Smith credits it for shoring up wavering support for the Constitution. Its impactfulness is testified to by Patrick Henry himself, for when he next rose to speak on June 23rd, 
he referenced back to Marshall's speech, saying, I have the highest veneration and respect for the honorable gentleman, and I have experienced his candor on all occasions. Though the rest of his remarks tried to counter and refute Marshall's speech, that nevertheless was a high compliment for a young man coming from someone with Henry's stature. The debate was now largely over. The Constitution had been gone through and debated clause by clause, and the convention was now in its fourth week. On June 24th, the delegates met for the final motions. Henry came to the chamber with 15 amendments to propose, but it was not to be. Madison and the Federalists were ready to take advantage of their procedural control of the hall. When Pendleton took his seat and called the session to order, the convention immediately went into the Committee of the Whole, just as they'd largely done throughout the proceedings, and the chair was given to a junior delegate. The functionary immediately recognized George Wythe, who put forth the motion to ratify, as it was, without even a discussion of amendments. Henry was immediately on his feet, insisting that this was premature, and brought his own motion listing his amendments. He had to feel betrayed, and he was angry. Swatting aside an appeal for conciliation and cooperation by Madison, Henry tried to open up one of his patented rhetorical broadsides upon the Federalists. But as he raged and declared that he only saw the awful immensity of the dangers with which the Constitution was pregnant, thunderstorms engulfed Richmond and boomed so loudly that Henry was forced to conclude his remarks, and the delegates agreed to resume the following day. Serious vote-counting and back-channel negotiations must have taken place that evening, because the next morning, June 25th, the tone had changed. Speaking for the Federalists, George Nicholas graciously assured the opposition that once ratified, they would support changes to the Constitution through the ratification process outlined within it. Still, Henry rose to speak, but his words were more reflective than forceful. If I shall be in the minority, I shall have those painful sensations which arise from a conviction of being overpowered in a good cause. Yet I will be a peaceable citizen. My head, my hand, and my heart shall be at liberty to retrieve the loss of liberty and remove the defects of that system in a constitutional way. I wish not to go to violence, but will wait with hopes that the spirit which predominated in the revolution is not yet gone, nor the cause of those who are attached to the revolution yet lost. I shall, therefore, patiently wait in expectation of seeing that government changed so as to be compatible with the safety, liberty, and happiness of the people. It would be close to the end. Henry's motion to amend lost 80 to 88. The final vote for ratification of the Constitution was 89 to 79. The Virginia Convention had been a hard, at times bitterly fought contest, wherein passions ran as high as the stakes. Many of the issues regarding the uneasy balance of competing state and federal sovereignties had been debated, sometimes with high eloquence, but the underlying tensions went unresolved, and in many ways the fault lines for the American Civil War remained just under the surface. Ironically, while the acquiescence of Virginia to the Constitution 
was of great practical importance, since a union without the largest, richest, and most powerful state would have been a dubious proposition. The convention itself ended up being legally superfluous. On June 21st, while the Virginians debated, tiny New Hampshire swept in and stole the thunder of becoming the ninth and final state needed to approve the Constitution. With the convention concluded, Marshall himself retired from the legislature, citing the fact that the future footing of good government had been secured, that he likely wouldn't be re-elected in the vehemently anti-federal Enrico County, and his need to focus more of his time and energy on his now booming law practice. So with this, we're going to leave off this time. I am sorry for the delay in releasing this episode. The tutoring opportunities which go hand in hand with the start of the school year in the United States hit me just as I got back from vacation, and that, combined with the complexity and importance of this topic, required quite a bit of extra research and editing to lash it all together into what I hope was an enjoyable narrative, and it certainly took longer than I expected. But if you enjoyed my effort, and you're able to, please pop over to our website, AmericanBiography.Webs.com, and consider making a secure PayPal donation. Also, remember if you want to head over to www.audibletrial.com forward slash American Biography, you can download Pauline Mayer's ratification for free by signing up for a 30-day free trial. You can follow the show on Twitter, at American underscore bio, and you can also like American Biography on Facebook. And breaking news, guys, the page just passed 100 likes, and I'm pretty excited about that. You can also help the show by giving it a sweet iTunes review, and I've recently gotten a few really nice reviews, and I'd like to thank those folks. You know who you are. I really appreciate it. As always, you can of course email me directly at AmericanBiographyPodcast at gmail.com. And lastly, I just want to give a shout out to David Appleson's Podcast of Doom. The Podcast of Doom is a podcast that explores the famous and consequential catastrophes, cataclysms, disasters, and emphatically bad decisions of world history. If you like fires, volcanoes, floods, marine disasters, or just the foibles of human nature, then the Podcast of Doom is for you. And he just did a great episode on the Irish potato famine. You should definitely check it out. Okay. Please join me next time as John Marshall tries to settle down and lead a quiet life of business and repose, only to find that the wider world just won't leave him alone. Thanks, and I'll talk to you soon.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 